Good evening, everyone. <coughs> My name is Penny.、Uh, the second Bible reading for tonight is One Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse one to thirty-four.、Um, so it should be on the page one two zero five on this Bible. Also, you could follow the screen. Okay. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance: that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures; that He was buried; that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am who what I am, and His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has not been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead, but He did not raise Him. If in fact the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God Himself, who put everything under Christ. When He has done this, then the Son Himself will be made subject to Him who put everything under Him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those who, what will those 
do who are baptized for the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus of merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. This is God's word. Have you ever wondered um, what would happen if the pastor calls a sickie on a Sunday and doesn't turn up when he's meant to be preaching? Well, I suspect that uh, even if the Word of God is read alone, it is nothing less than the Word of God and that should be encouraging enough. But anyway, tonight I'm here and uh, we need God's help. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to this important passage that you help us to see the hope that you do offer in your son Jesus who was raised from the dead. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I wonder if, if you've ever done this before. Have you ever taken a nice, long, quiet, romantic, peaceful stroll through a cemetery? None of you have done that? Now, not that I'm weird and I do this often and not that it's really romantic at all. In fact, it's just peaceful and quiet if you know what I mean. But I have done this and in the past as I've done this, I'm always interested in reading the epitaphs, the the inscriptions on the gravestone. They're they're very insightful. Here are some I came across, not, not in my live strolling but over the internet anyway. Here's one. Raised Four beautiful daughters with only one bathroom and still there was love. Here's another one. He loved bacon. Oh, and his wife and kids too. I made some good deals and I made some bad deals. I really went in the hole with this one. Here's another one. Here I lie, but don't you cry, for one day too you will die. That's quite romantic, isn't it? Poetic. Here's another one. He lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. (laughs) Apparently, C.S. Lewis, he was told about this inscription, to which he replied, I bet he wishes that were so. But often what you find is when you go through the cemetery and you read these inscriptions, quite a lot of them have a deep sense of longing a deep sense of yearning that there would be something beyond the grave. And so there are other inscriptions I found, popular ones like this. May your journey on your next adventure be as joy-filled as your time with us. See you soon. You see, there's that sense of longing that there is more beyond the grave. Or this one, no pain, no grief, no anxious fear can reach our loved one sleeping here. It's just sleeping. The loved one is just sleeping there in the ground. There is this sense, this yearning for something more. Or even famous people, Frank Sinatra. 
The best is yet to come. There's this expectation that there is more beyond the grave. Or Martin Luther King Jr. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. See, in a lot of these tombstones, a lot of these inscriptions, whether the deceased were Christians or not, there is this natural human longing, this yearning that there, that there would be more beyond the grave. In fact, you see, it's a Christian word that was invented. The word cemetery is used instead of the word graveyard. The, the word cemetery comes from a Greek word which means dormitory, the, the place of the sleeping. And so that's a Christian idea. But now, is this all wishful thinking? You know, this longing and yearning for more beyond the grave, is that just wishful thinking? Could there be more after decaying and rotting away in the ground? Is there more? But you see, if there is more, the question is, is there, if there is more after the grave, if there is indeed an afterlife, it throws a whole new perspective on the life now, doesn't it? If the grave is in fact not really the end, it throws a whole new perspective on life now. And so what we're looking at today in this passage, Paul wants the people, the Corinthians, the Christians, to cast their eyes into the future. You see, the, the Corinthians, the Christians then, they were so caught up in living for the now. They were so caught up in living in the moment. And so they were divided over their leaders instead of being united under Christ. They were engaging in sexual immorality instead of living pure lives. They were acting selfishly instead of seeking the interests of others. And they were also bragging about their spiritual gifts instead of using their spiritual gifts in love for the building of the church. You see, the Corinthian Christians, they were focused on the now. Paul wants them to cast their eyes into the future. And so in this passage, Paul wants them to remember two big things, two big points. The first is the centrality of the gospel. This is what we're on about, don't miss that. And the second thing is the necessity of the resurrection. This had to happen. If it didn't happen, then all is lost and all is rubbish. And so firstly, in in one sense, Paul tries to bring them back. They've been debating, there's division and all sorts of problems and issues, Paul wants them to come back. Let's come back now to what is really important. You see, there's 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians. He's now almost at the end. Let's come back to what is really important. Let's come back to what we're really on about. Let's come back to the gospel of Christ. And so now he reminds them this gospel, this gospel which Paul himself proclaimed and preached to them which established their church. He's telling them, hold firmly to this gospel which you believe, which saves you. And so have a look at verses 1 and 2. Paul goes, Now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. He's bringing them back. Focus on this, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. You see, if you don't go holding on to this gospel which saved you, you've got nothing. It is all in vain. It is all meaningless. And so what you need to do is to believe, but to go on believing is a present indicative. It's keep on believing. And so no one can say, I believe when I was three years old. 
And that's enough. I believe back then, once saved, always saved. Well, no, Paul says, not once saved, always saved. You're saved then, you believe then, keep on believing. Keep on holding on to this gospel which saves you. Now, this gospel which Paul proclaimed was no random message. It wasn't something that Paul just plucked up out of the ground somewhere, but it was according to scripture. It was all foretold and expected. The word Paul uses here to pass on to them is in fact a technical word for the passing on of a body of tradition. Like how the rabbis were handed down from generation to generation their teachings, their tradition. So Paul was handing them over to them this body of tradition of first importance. This is the heirloom. This is the most important thing, Paul says. And so have a look at verse 5. He says, For what I received... I pass on to you as of first importance, like passing on the heirloom. And what was passed? Well, he says four things quite quickly. Firstly, that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. It was foretold that Christ would die for their sins. Now, the clearest passage in the Old Testament would perhaps be Isaiah 53, where the suffering servant took on the iniquities of the people for them. Now, how did they know that Christ did in fact die, die historically? Well, Paul tells them, verse 4, the second thing, that he was buried. They knew that. Many of them witnessed that. The burial was confirmation of his death. And then the third point, he says, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You see, even the resurrection was foretold. Jesus spoke about Jonah, how he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, and so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The resurrection was foretold. How did they know that historically? Well, verse 5, the fourth thing he says, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. The appearance of Jesus after his death is confirmation of his resurrection. And so Paul is trying to get them back to, to the centre, to the core of the Gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus foretold in scripture, but also confirmed historically in the burial of Jesus and in the appearance of Jesus. Now, just in case anyone would claim then, well, the 12 disciples, they stole the body, they made up this whole story of the resurrection of Jesus, or that the 12, they were all hallucinating together when they claimed to have seen Jesus. Well, Paul now reminds them, it wasn't just the 12 who saw Jesus, but at least 500 who saw them. Look at verses 6 to 8. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he, spare, uh, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. And so Paul is saying, those witnesses out of those 500 who witnessed, who saw Jesus in the flesh after his death, many of them are still alive. They can testify to this. Go and talk to them. Ask them if you want. And then Paul goes on to say, well, I've seen the Lord Jesus myself. I witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Now, of course, many will will find the resurrection just hard to believe. No one comes back from the dead and understandably so. And of course so. This is not a normal occurrence. And often people would argue that disciples... They simply lied about this whole story. They, in fact, lied about the empty tomb. 
they lied about the appearances of Jesus and they concocted up this whole gospel story of Jesus dying and coming back to life again. But listen to what this intelligent man once said. Chuck Colson, he said this about the resurrection. Now Chuck Colson, he was part of the uh, Richard Nixon administration. He became a Christian but then he went to prison for his crimes in one of the biggest uh, political scandal in the United States. Remember that? The, the Watergate scandal. Well, listen to what he's, he said. I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. I mean, these disciples, these apostles of Jesus, they died for that fact. And so this gospel, it was proclaimed by Paul, it was foretold in scripture, it was witnessed by hundreds and it was also something Paul himself experienced. You see, Paul was nothing less than an apostle of Jesus Christ. Though he says he he didn't think he deserved to be one. Look at verse 9 now. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But yet Paul himself, he was convicted by the gospel, he was changed, he was transformed and he was commissioned by Jesus to to be a minister of the gospel. And so verse 10, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Now the reality is that Paul wrote almost half the New Testament. And then he goes on, Yet not I but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. And so Paul is trying to get them to refocus all of these issues through the first 14 chapters of 1 Corinthians. He's now regrouping them, refocusing them. You're getting caught up with the periphery. You're bringing the periphery into the centre. Paul's telling them, keep the centre the centre. Keep the periphery at the periphery. Keep the gospel at the centre of your faith and your existence. But now in light of this gospel that they've received and believed, there appears to be some in the church who were confused. They had got their theology wrong. Some of them were living as though there will be no resurrection. That's the issue Paul is addressing here. And so Paul says, In a sense, you can't seriously believe that, can you? That there will be no resurrection and that there was no resurrection? You see, if you do believe this, there are major and massive consequences. And so Paul says here, verse 12, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You see, Paul's trying to appeal to their logic, to their mind. If there was no resurrection, then Christ would still be in the tomb, dead and decaying. And so verse verse 14, Paul goes on, And if Christ had not been raised, 
Our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Paul is saying, our preaching, it's useless, it is worthless, it is empty, it is baseless and so is your faith. What are you believing then? You're believing in a lie. You're trusting in a lie. It is all rubbish if the resurrection did not take place. You see, if it did not take place, then we are all liars, Paul goes on to say. Look at verse 15 now. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now, do you see the argument Paul is making here? Christianity, what you believe, what we believe, Christianity falls apart if there is no resurrection. Christianity stands or falls on the historical event of the resurrection. Prove that the resurrection did not happen, then all of this is rubbish. All of 2,000 years of Christian history is rubbish. All the church buildings and missionary work, that is all rubbish if the resurrection did not happen. And so you see, Christianity is a historical religion. It is based on historical events. And that's why John Dixon, he's the director of the Centre of Public Christianity, he said this, He says this, Christianity happily places its neck on the chopping block of public scrutiny and invites anyone who wishes to come and take a swing. And so, if you like, come and take a swing at Christianity. Take a swing. Show that the resurrection did not take place and this will all be rubbish. You would have achieved your goal. Go on. Take a swing. Prove that there is no no resurrection and all Christianity just falls apart. You see, without the resurrection, four points here to note. Without the resurrection, the death of Jesus was meaningless. It did not achieve anything. You're still dead in your sin. You still have to pay for your own sins because without the resurrection, there's no confirmation at all that the death of Jesus worked. And so that was the first point. The death of Jesus would be meaningless. Second point. Without the resurrection, Jesus was then like, just like any other ordinary man, just like any other religious man of history. He'll be just like Buddha, or just like Muhammad, dead and still in the ground. Not the son of God he claims to be, not the Messiah he claims to be, not the saviour he claims to be. And so his death was just a sad waste of life. That's the second thing. The third point, without the resurrection, there is no hope at all. For those who who have already died, well, they're really gone. They have died. There is no hope for them at all. And fourthly, without the resurrection, Christians are to be pitied above everyone else. You see, Christians are then just pathetic people who have been fooled if the resurrection did not take place. Listen to what Paul says, verses 18 and 19. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. 
You see, the resurrection is indispensable to the Christian gospel. Lose the resurrection and you lose everything. Prove that the resurrection did not happen and you'll show us all that we're wasting our time. You would rather be home now watching TV. You know what's on TV now? I checked up earlier this afternoon. Sean the Sheep or Dancing with the Stars. You'd rather be watching that than being here. In fact, for me, I'm not just wasting my time, I'm wasting my life. I should have continued my career as an engineer. Prove that the resurrection did not happen. Everything falls apart. But you see, Paul was under no illusions of what really did happen and what he really did witness. Jesus was raised from the dead. And more than that, look at verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, the resurrection of this man, of Jesus, was so powerful, so earth-shattering, that all the dead will be raised one day because of that power. By that same power, they are merely sleeping now, but they will be raised to life again. You see, he's the first fruits. In fact, in the words of C.S. Lewis, he's the first of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He's the first fruits, that is, he has set in motion the resurrection of the rest. And now Paul goes on to explain how Jesus reversed what Adam did. Adam, in his rebellion against God, he brought death to humanity. But Jesus, in his obedience to God, even on the cross, brought resurrection life to those who belong to him. And this is what Paul says, verses 21 to 23. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And once that happens, it will be the end. When Christ comes, that will be the end. The whole universe will be brought into submission to Jesus, the King of the universe. All the enemies of God will be defeated and Christ will then hand the kingdom, all that has been brought under him, he will hand that kingdom back to God the Father. Just imagine what that scene will be like. I'm trying to, I was trying to think about sort of illustrating and painting this picture of what that scene might be like. I want you to imagine this. The last scene of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Remember that? If you haven't seen the Lord of the Rings, shame on you. <laughs> but anyway, the last scene of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The symphony is playing, the music is uplifting and elevating and majestic and Celtic. Anyway, the scene is glorious. They're up high on a castle. They're looking down, it is glorious. The orcs, the dragons, the ogres, the trolls, the giants, they're all done away with. All the dark powers of the Dark Lord and Mordor completely destroyed, all evil done away with. And the rightful king reigns. The elves, the humans, the dwarves, the hobbits are all in submission. Just imagine that. Imagine that scene, the glory, the majesty. No, no, does it bring a tear to your eye? It's a beautiful scene. But the only difference is that that was just a story, a fake story. But what Paul is telling us here is real and it will be far greater. 
all things will be brought under the reign of Christ and then he will hand it all back to God the Father. Have a look, verses 24 to 28. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now we have to see how significant that is. There will be the death of death itself. Isn't that ironic? The death of death itself. The great insatiable ugly beast will stop swallowing up lives. It will come to an end. This is the triumph of Jesus over death. C.S. Lewis, he puts it this way. He forced open the door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. You see, everything is different now because death has been defeated. And so following on, verse 27, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when he says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. You see, in the end, God will reign. The rightful king will reign, whether you like it or not. And the resurrection of Jesus is proof of that. Now finally, in these final verses, Paul reflects then on their experience and then his own experience. First, their experience. He is trying to get them to see the logic of what they are doing. If there is no resurrection, then why, why are some of you being baptised on behalf of the dead? He, he, he alludes to this strange practice. Now, there are dozens of different interpretations of this verse, but what Paul is most likely referring to is that there was this practice in which those alive were being baptised on, on those believers who have died before they were baptised. Does that make sense? So, some believers... Uh, became believers, but they died before they were baptised and so those alive were baptised on their behalf. Um, strange practice. Now, now, in referring to this practice anyway, Paul was not approving of that practice. He wasn't saying this is a good thing. Rather, he was appealing to their practice as an argument for the resurrection. What's the point of baptising for the dead in, in place of the dead if there's no resurrection of the dead at all? And so that's what he says, verse 29. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised for them? He's appealing to a practice, not, uh, not necessarily approving of it. And so that was their experience. Their experience and their practice should have convinced them that there is a resurrection of the dead. And now Paul, finally, he appeals to his own experience. If the dead are not raised at all, Paul would not in his right mind be putting himself in such danger. He fought animals. He suffered. He's put his life on the line for the sake of the gospel. If it's all a fraud, why bother? You would rather eat and get drunk. And so that's what Paul ends up saying, verse 30 to 32. 
And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers. Just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Without the resurrection, all of life itself becomes meaningless. And now finally, Paul gives his final exhortations. Don't be a fool. God is real. Don't be a fool. Verse 33. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning for there are some who are ignorant of God and I say this to your shame. And so that's the passage. Now what are we to make of this? We are sitting about 2,000 years after this resurrection event. What are we to make of this today? Well, you see, if the historical event, the historical resurrection of Jesus did take place, then it affects all of you. Then it affects all of this world, whether you are a Christian or not. Whether you believe it or not, it affects you. This is something that affects not just Christians, but the whole of humanity. And we know with certainty that there is something after death. There is something beyond the grave because one man did come back from the dead. You see, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then not only did his death work, his death was for us and was for our sins, but it also proves all that he said and did, all that he taught and said and did was all true. He is in fact the Son of God. He is the one who will stand in judgement over us. He is the one who came in love to rescue us. That is all true, if the resurrection did happen. And so you see, if this is true, if the resurrection did happen, and all that Jesus taught and said is true, if this is all true, then it's true whether you like it or not. It remains true whether you like it or not. And so this evening, if you are here tonight, and I know some of you are here who are not yet Christians, uh, we're, we're grateful and glad that you are here exploring what Christianity is about. But if you are here and you are not yet a Christian, you really do owe it to yourself to convince yourself either way. This is where Christianity stands or falls. And so if you convince yourself that the resurrection did not happen, throw it all away. It's rubbish and you have done yourself a service. But if you convince yourself that it did happen, then you might as well become a Christian. It will be like opening up the blinds in a, uh, in a dark room. You'll see meaning and purpose to this life because the resurrection is true. You'll have hope after the grave. So that is for you if you're not a Christian. You owe it to yourself to work out either way whether the resurrection happened or not. And this evening, if you are a Christian then, then it means that you are already convinced that the resurrection did take place. And so Paul's exhortation to you then is to live like you are convinced that the resurrection did take place. And so it means the reverse of what Paul was saying. Our faith then is not useless. You see, our faith is not useless. It is faith in the king who came back from the dead. 
No one has done that. No one will ever have to do that ever again until he returns. Secondly, our preaching is not in vain. You see, what we say, what we share, that is the power to save lives and souls in this world. I mean, who in the world gets to have such a privilege, such a message to proclaim, such a glorious news? We have that. Our preaching is not in vain. There is life after death and this is how you can come to have it. More than that, we are not to be pitied. Rather, Christians, in a sense, should be the envy of the world. You see, we have the king who has defeated death and he is on our side and we are on his side. If anything, we are the envy of the world. Next, the grave is not the end. If the resurrection did take place, the grave is not the end. There is now real and and genuine and complete assurance of hope in eternal life. And finally, our life is not meaningless, but is filled with purpose and meaning. There is life that goes on. And so if you think about the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection, we will still go back to living our own lives. Tonight as we return home, tomorrow as we go back to school, go back to work, we will still live our own lives. But if you understand this, you have to live lives with new eyes. You see, no matter what comes our way, no matter how great the struggles are in life, no matter how overbearing the burdens are in life, no matter how defeating the disappointments are in life, no matter how tragic the tragedies are in life, and no matter how crushing death is as it takes our loved ones and as it one day takes our lives as well. You see, all those things are temporary. And so just like that old hymn, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Whatever comes my way, whatever may come, Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees your resurrection if you want it. That is the promise of God. And so if you think about this, what better way is there to live our lives? What better way to use our lives but for him who will one day raise us also? And as we see life, as we live life with this perspective, We can live life with nothing to lose. Really, there is nothing to lose because we Christians have everything in Christ already. We've been given a glimpse beyond the grave. This is God's wonderful, gracious promise to us. And so now as we end, as you cast your eyes into the future, what inscription would you like to have on your tombstone? What would you like your loved ones to write for you on your behalf on your tombstone? Well, in the cemetery on Burwood Highway next to Macca's, this was what I found. A servant of Christ, Jesus Christ. This person died 62 years ago, but awaiting the resurrection, they shall be raised up together in Christ Jesus. I mean, this is probably true for that person, waiting the resurrection. Is it true for you? Well, that is my prayer and I hope that's your prayer for each other. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the hope that is so real 
the assurance in the resurrection of life. And we thank you that you've given us proof in the raising of your own son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray that this evening, those of us who have yet to come to see and believe, we pray, Lord, that you might work in their hearts. And for those of us who already know this to be true, help us live a life where we are really convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.